Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the reading of your word. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus who is alive. And we thank you and ask that you would help us by your spirit to take your living word into our hearts for the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. He is risen. Hallelujah. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and his victory over the grave. We rejoice in the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ, redeeming our bodies and renewing all things. But is the resurrection only important to us after death? Or does Christ being the resurrection and the life mean that there's freedom and resurrection power available now. So this is a different type of Easter message. But don't get me wrong, I believe in the message. I believe in the, in the, in the comfort of the resurrection and that what it brings to us when we experience a loss. And so be assured, I, I embrace all of that truth. However... The resurrection has meaning for living in this world now with the new life of Christ growing in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying and molding us into the image of Christ, which will one day culminate in new bodies fit for the eternal life that we possess in these mortal bodies. The story of Jesus raising Lazarus shows us that God has a long-range plan of making everything, everything new for those he loves and destroying what he hates. And we see it in the response of the Jews when they exclaim, See how he loved him? What did Jesus do that prompted such an exclamation? Look back at verses 33 and 35 of of John 11. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And normally... When you hear this preached, you know, the text, it, it sound, it's, you know, you think that of Jesus is Jesus weeping. That that's why they would say that their remarks would be, well, see how he loved him. But I want to suggest to you that it isn't just the weeping. It's not just the weeping, but rather it's the anger. It's the anger that Jesus showed in this moment. Because in verse 33 and, and 38, it said that Jesus was deeply moved. And the Greek word there, it's, it's one word, and, it, and it's an intense emotion. And it, and it means to snort with anger. See, Jesus is angry, and the Jews exclaim, see how he loved him? Now, we know the rest of the story. Jesus proceeds to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. You know, there's a, so, so there's a connection between the Lord's anger and the resurrection. And from the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we learn something about resurrection power and, and, and the help that we have with our struggle with anger. Because the story teaches us about the resurrection and the reason for anger. 
the right use of anger and the redemption of anger. So let's think about this. The resurrection and and the reason for anger. Look at verse 33 to 35. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So what's the reason for for Jesus' anger? Since he knew what he was going to do, what's the reason for his anger? Well, given the context, he's angry at death. And who isn't? Who isn't angry at death? Death has been a disruption of relationships that I would love to have continue. Death is, is not convenient. It doesn't ask permission. It comes uninvited. It spoils everything. And when it strikes, it leaves a a hole in your heart that seems bottomless. Who isn't angry at death? And see, if you and I are, are angry about death, then what about God? He's been angry at death a lot longer than you and I. See, death was not a part of the original creation. God created us to live and and reflect him forever. Death entered the world because of disobedience to the command of God. Remember, Adam and Eve, they were told, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, Adam and Eve brought death into the human family through their disobedience. And we see... In the Garden of Eden, when perfection is is ruined by our first parents' sin, God comes down. And when he comes down, he's angry. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says that the man and the woman, they hid. When they heard the sound of the Lord God. And that Hebrew word for sound is a word that's often associated with a storm. As in, and, and it was used in, in, in describing a deity when the deity would, would come down in a storm of anger and wrath, thundering. And with that in mind, it's easy to understand then why they hid themselves. This means that God's anger was provoked by our sin. It's provoked by our sin. Deuteronomy 32, 16 says this. They stirred him, talking about the Jews, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. See, God is angry at sin and death, but his anger is not like ours. See, our anger, it's unpredictable, isn't it? It's unjustified. It's explosive. And it's based on the perception of of injustices that may or or may not be real or true. See, God's anger isn't like that. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God reveals his nature to Moses. And he says to Moses, as he passes before him, the Lord passes before him and proclaim the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this is the nature of God. And listen to what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says about Jesus, because it says this of Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So there at the grave, there with the, there with, there with the mourners, there is Jesus expressing the exact imprint of God's nature. He's expressing the ex- exactly what God himself feels and expresses. He's righteously indignant. And the reason for anger, Jesus is angered at death as the enemy of those he loves. And in his anger, he doesn't react like we do. Instead, he goes about to set things right. This is, this, this is point number two. Then Jesus, look at verse 38 through 43, the right use of anger. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You see, resurrection is an act of justice. It's the result of the right use of anger setting things right. Now, modern people that we are and the modern culture that, that, we, that we live in, you know, you might not like to hear about an angry God. But here's the truth. You don't know how much God loves you if you don't have an understanding about the anger of God. Because anger shows what you love most. Human love, human loves, our loves, as, as Augustine puts it, are disordered. And what he means is that we love and value things and, and people and, and ideas in a, in a way that only God should be loved. So we take temporary things and we make them ultimate things. You can love your spouse But if you love them too much, when they're gone, you fall apart. Or if they leave you, you want to kill them. See, you can can love your job, but when you lose your job or, or you're fired, you're angered. And you want to destroy that place that you've given your life to. And if you are your favorite subject... Of course, you would admit it in public. If you perceive that, that you've been slighted because of a disagreement or a misunderstanding or a criticism, you're angry and you lash out at your spouse or your friend or your children, the furniture or your pet. You make temporary things. You make temporary things, ultimate things. You're taking good things and and turning them into gods in your life. And when that God is threatened, you get angry. 
See, that's not the right use of, that's not the right use of anger. Jesus shows us, because Jesus shows us what he loves. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then in verse 4, it says this, Jesus says this about the one he loves. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, anger anger shows what you love most, but anger defends those it loves. Jesus loved both the glory of God and Lazarus. Jesus defends both the glory of God and Lazarus. You see, that's why, that's why you can't have a loving God without having a God who is angry at sin and death too. Because the other side of love is anger. Becky Pippert explains this so well in her book, Hope Has Its Reason. She writes, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian E.H. Glifford wrote, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Isn't it good to know Isn't it good to know that you have a God who loves you that powerfully? Isn't it good to know that the other side of Jesus' love, his anger, defends you? Is that a comfort? See, resurrection is the right use of anger. Death is a threat to those whom Jesus loves. And he defends us and destroys the threat. And he says it's to the glory of God. Hallelujah. So you see, Jesus has resurrection power that teaches us the reason for anger is to set things right. It shows us the right use of anger, defending what it loves most. But focused on God's glory, resurrection gives us the redemption of anger. Look at verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man had died, came out. 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I always found it interesting that Jesus would enlist the help of the crowd and, and the sisters in raising Lazarus. He tells them to take away the stone. And then he says to them, after he raises Lazarus, he says to them, you unbind him and let him go. You see, because Jesus, he could have done these things all at once. Lazarus, get up, drop those dirty bandages. He could have done it all at once, but instead he commands the people to do it. See, but this, this illustrates something for it. It, it, it illustrates for us that, that the resurrection power, resurrection power redeems anger. It looks like helping those who are dead and coming to life through the gospel to become free in Christ. You see, we who are alive in Christ are to use our anger at sin and death in acts of justice helping to bring others to freedom in Christ. Jesus raises them from the dead. We come alongside and help them to be free. The church is to remind, the church is to remind, you're not dead anymore. Christ has made you alive. Colossians 3 and verse 1 says this. Well, let me back up. See, Christ, he calls us to face the smell of death with the confidence of his love at work to bring about the glory of God to help unbind the dead he raises. So Colossians 3, 1 says this, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So here's the question. Do you smell That smell. Do you smell, do you smell the smell of death that's around you? See, if you've ever smelt a decomposing body, you will never forget it. Yeah, say, what am I talking? Well, so the smell of death, it's the smell, it's the smell of an unregenerated society decomposing in its own anger. It's not difficult to see how angry our nation is. It's a daily occurrence. The man who killed his mother and and he's out on parole. He attacks an Asian American woman who was on her way to church. And the people in the store look, callously close the door and not even go out to help her. There's the smell of death. And in some places... Domestic violence was 80% higher in 2020 during the lockdown than in the three previous years combined. That's the smell of death. Communities holding their breath if the verdict in the George Floyd case isn't what some are expecting. That's the smell of death. As a nation... We don't know the reason for our anger, therefore we don't use it right, and we're not sure that there's any redemption for our anger. And the nation is like Isaiah, the people, the Israelites in Isaiah, like a pregnant woman, the passage says, who rise and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, 
We writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. But there's no rescue. So what if? What if they knew that the freedom of the resurrection can be theirs today? What if they knew that their lives can be, their loves can be ordered rightly in Jesus Christ? Now someone might say, who believes that kind of stuff? Who believes that that's true? You might as well believe in happily ever afters. What I want to know is, is there anyone, is there anyone who feels my pain like this. Now, I like a show, The Blacklist. The criminal Raymond Reddington in this, in this show, he's, he's using the FBI to, to build his criminal empire by snitching on the FBI's most wanted criminals. You know, it's, really, it's really pretty uh, funny at times. Uh, but in one episode, Dim, Dimbe, Dimbe is Reddington's friend, and he's, Dimbe is kidnapped, and, and he's being tortured by one of Reddington's enemies who's seeking information about Raymond. And Reddington makes a deal with his enemy to trade his life for Dimbe's. And he nearly dies before Dimbe escapes and rescues Reddington. But while recovering, while recovering from this, this near, nearly dying, Raymond asked Dimbe, do you believe I see your pain? And Dimbe replies, not always. You see, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Jesus asks, do you believe I see your pain? Isn't that what he's asking? Isn't that what he's saying to, to Mary and Martha when they said, Lord, if you had been here, and if, didn't I tell you? If you believe, you would see the glory of God. Isn't he saying to the, isn't he saying, do you believe I see your pain? And too many of us are like Dimbe. Not always, Lord, not always. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. See, in an angry nation, and an angry nation looks at the church and asks, do you believe Jesus sees our pain? I want to tell you this morning, Jesus has felt our pain. He sees our pain. And, and you and I, believers, Christians, we have reason to say always, always, he always sees our pain. And here's why. Because the, Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and blood Because he shares the anger the father has at sin and death. He knew the reason for the father's anger. That though the father hates sin, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus knew Isaiah 26 and verse 12. Oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. He sets things right. See, Jesus used anger rightly to secure that peace for those whom he loves. He took the wrath aimed at us on himself. And because Jesus died in our place, the Father's wrath destroyed 
our sin in him so that he wouldn't have to destroy us. Give glory to God. The promise of Isaiah 26, 19 is true for all whose faith rests in Jesus. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. You see, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, it's the action that God took to bring about justice for his people. And in the anger of God, we see how much God loves us by ending the enemy, death. And the outcome of the resurrection of Christ applied to the hearts of God's people leads to acts of justice. And as the world sees the right use of our anger deployed in redemptive ways, they will say, see how much he loved them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our life. You who are alive and living in your people are able to help us. Oh God, how we need your help in this culture of death and anger. Lord, we need your help to display the love that you have for us for the glory of your name. And we ask that you would do it for Jesus' sake. In whose name we pray, amen.